Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning, yeah. <laughs> and myself as well, you know, just jumping out of the fray there. <laughs> G'day, Jordan. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I had yeah some, that's right. I had some great news recently. I actually managed to get a teaching job. Yeah, so, bravo, yeah. bravo. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Consistent work. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, full time. Salary. <laughs> <laughs> we won't know goodness. you. And, and in fact, that might mean that uh, we, we after a while, we won't hear your dulcet tones, which is a real pity, but... Um, you're in the middle of doing great work leading up to May Day. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, there's so much happening for May Day as well. We've got events down at Trades Hall and then there's stuff happening at... Um, actually, there's there's one event I'm going to go along and check out, which is the International Solidarity event. That's on Thursday at 6pm, Trades Hall again, of course. Um, that seems particularly interesting. I think there's going to be some good presenters and good speakers there. So, um, yeah, I'll go along and check yeah. it out. Well, on um, May the 1st, uh, 3CR is going to do special programming to celebrate May Day. Mm-hmm. So uh, we kick off the early part of the day and then it's going to go on uh, and we'll hear a whole lot of your stings that you're going to be working on. Yeah. Uh, you might be interested in 3CR's Joe Toscano, the um, super uh, anarchist mm. who is going to be running a event on May the 1st, uh, starting at Trades Hall where at 11.30, where they're going to be walking. He's going to do a tour of uh, the uh, top anarchist spots in Melbourne mm. and uh, he's going to finish it off at uh, Her Majesty's Theatre which is the home of Australia's first anarchist organisation formed on the 1st of May 1886 so the mm. place is dripping in anarchist history. Yeah of course. Um, yeah. Anyway lots of things to celebrate on May the 1st also there's uh, events on May the 2nd there's going to be mm. um, a march uh it's also starting at uh, Trades Hall. That's at one thirty, and Trades Hall is, of course, on the corner of Victoria Street and Ligon Street in Carlton. Yep, near the eight 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 monument as well. I should say the eight hour monument, more more specifically. Um, uh, and we probably yeah. should uh, recognise the fact that it's uh, it was uh, on Friday. There was a uh, memorial for the uh, uh, outrageous. Uh, carnage at the workplace in Rana Plaza uh, in um, Pakistan, was it? Pa- is that is R- Rana Plaza? Yeah, this is news to me, unfortunately. Oh, r- no, sorry. so r- Rana Plaza is a, um, uh, uh, forgive me for uh, 
not actually locating the place, but uh, it was uh, to do with um, garment workers. Uh, mm. They were in... Um, uh, over a 1,000 people were killed in the collapse of a building. Um, the doors were locked. They were sweatshop workers, mm. um, and uh, mostly female. Mm. Uh, and uh, they were killed in this. Uh, it's one of the uh, biggest, and it was recent, re- uh, relatively recent, like about six years ago. Mm. It's a huge... Uh, um, uh, indicator of the uh, working conditions that uh, our fellow workers in other countries are dealing with. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, this is one of the reasons for why May the 1st is such an important uh, e- a time for workers to uh, consolidate and uh, work together for in the future for a better world. Yeah, absolutely. Were. If capitalism is global, then if you want to fight it with a union and a union response, your union response has to be global. You can't just isolate workers that are nearby or local to you. You have to reach across the pond. And so, yeah, we, we have to look at those workers' struggles internationally. Um, otherwise, we're not just going to be able to, we're, we're not going to be able to keep up. That's well, the gist of it. Well, considering that uh, the economies of the West have been plundering the, econ- uh, the economies of the South in order to bolster their own wealth, mm. uh, then uh, we should consider that uh, our own consumption is actually involved in this. Well, you know, it's a, it's a system that preys on all of us. Well said. Now, uh, you've got some really interesting news about uh, us. Uh, uh, yeah, so yeah. Um, one one thing that piqued my attention today uh, was that uh, well, it wasn't it wasn't today, but a while back uh, there was a miner by the name of Wayne Sellers who gave some really strong evidence to the Coal Mine Board of Inquiry, and this was back on April seventh. Um, there was a, a methane ga- gas blast at Anglo Americans Grosvenor Mine in central Queensland, and this happened on May the sixth last year. Um, it was to do with the roof strata. Oh, another anniversary. Of the, yeah, funny that. Yeah, <laughs> it was to do with the roof strata uh, collapsing, and I think um, aside from describing his horrific injuries that were sustained uh, by this, you know, gas blast, um, the he really spoke to the underlying conditions that were present in the mine at the time of the blast, or long long before the time of the blast. Um, one of the biggest things that he pointed out is that he confirmed that his requests and other workers' requests for pumping were not agreed to by management, quote, all the time. And this is particularly important because it points to why the roof strata would collapse in the first place. Regular pumping was not undertaken. Um, further to that, this, uh, sorry, Wayne is a very, very, um, successful industry worker. He's worked in it for 13 years and he's worked at this particular mine since 2014. So he's he knows the work site intimately, but management clearly have shown this abject refusal to listen. And consequently, um, he, he's... It, well, when the explosion happened, he got burns to about 70% of his body. Um, it, anyway, that is some particularly striking evidence, well worth investigating, um, uh, it's this business yeah. about uh, the difference between hands-on and the uh, bean counters, and mm. the uh, that why OH and S is battleground effectively. Mm. So uh, the the other thing that jumped out to me about the um, about the testimony was that he described that there was an eight-week 
prior to the May 6 blast. So eight weeks, there was 14 reported high potential incidents of methane exceedance, right? And this in the industry is basically known as a near miss. (laughs) So you can imagine once or twice a week in the lead up to this blast, there were these regular methane near misses. Yeah, that's outrageous. And Sellers told this inquiry that his crew was never once evacuated for each of these incidents. So you can imagine if, if you're a worker on that site and you're seeing these near misses constantly come up, you can't help but feel like you must be the canary in a mineshaft cage, right? And explicitly, you will stay in that cage. Oh, that's so dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. So go check out that inquiry because the evidence that was given in it is damning, frankly. Well, um, over the last uh, while, there's been a Senate inquiry into into precarious work. And Mm. uh, they were in Melbourne last week. So congratulations to all those people who gave evidence at that inquiry. There's been uh, quite a lot of... uh, uh, work and uh, workers giving their uh, t- their um, experiences mm. uh, with this uh, absolutely poisonous uh, thing that's been uh, forced. This an Americanization of the um, employment landscape in Australia, which has been going on for quite a while now. Mm. Um, Do you want to talk about what we got coming in for today? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got uh, a piece about uh, the Nigerian Teachers Union, so they're, they're pretty game game lot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, as we were teasing last week, um, uh, they've organised a strike which went on for nine months through a pandemic um, just to protect the tertiary education workforce. So we'll hear about that. Um, and then after that, I've, I've got a, a piece which I must admit has come from an unusual spot. Um, the Unitarian Half Hour, which is a show that runs on 3CR on Saturdays, um, sometimes does definitely produce some interesting stuff. And very well, recently... Quite often it Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, that being said, not not often is it rare that we see an intersectionality between religion and trade unionism. And their president, Paul, gave this lovely lecture on the Wizard of Oz book. Turns out it's actually a great analogy, sorry, allegory, um, for the uh, tin and metalworking industries within the United States over the course of the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. Really fascinating. So we'll hear about that. Uh, and then uh, we're up to uh, speak oh, yeah, to... Yeah. We're going to talk to uh, Jack Vendis from the Friends of Public Housing. Last week we spoke to uh, Steve Jolly about uh, the Yarra Council uh, rejecting the uh, state government's offer for some uh, a project that uh, is a private uh, and uh, social housing um, model hmm. uh, development with money attached. Now, um, the Yarra Council voted it down and the Friends of Public Housing, they support that vote um, and they're going to tell us why um, because they're in in uh, they're championing the uh, uh, importance of public housing over social housing anyway we're going to investigate that and we're going to talk to Jan, uh, Jack Vendis about this it follows with uh, this is the week that was uh, Kevin does his stuff mm-hmm. uh, good good and we follow up uh, Chris Breen. Uh, Chris Breen's incitement case was thrown out by the magistrates, but uh, that may not be the last tango uh, on this particular issue. But we'd, we'll find out how Chris fared 
and also what the magistrate actually was uh, interested in uh, when she uh, said that, uh, no, 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 um, it wasn't an incitement case. But before we get on with the program, let's hear from uh, the Mighty with Palpuans. Free West Papua Free Free West Papua Free Before the genocide, a celebration of West Papuan culture, history and struggle. Launch party Saturday, 1st of May, 3 to 9 p.m. and exhibitions of archival photos from West Papua pre-Indonesian occupation cultural artifacts, and contemporary art by West Papuan artists. Lobe Wangai, Jeffrey Jikwa, and other members of West Papuan community here in Melbourne. Traditional West Papuan food from Joyce Kitchen, and music from the Sego and Jill Kogoya. Join us for the opening night for food, music, and dance at Basement Gallery, Collingwood Yards, 35 Johnston Street, Collingwood, Launch party Saturday, 1st of May, 3 to 9 p.m. Or few exhibitions Sunday, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Collingwood Yards. Before the genocide, find us on Facebook. A 3CR supporter. Free West Papua Free. Free West Papua Free. Yeah. Free West Papua Free. Oh, Free West Papua Free. This is Solidarity Breakfast. You're with Jordan and Annie. Look, uh, last week, if you're a regular listener, you would have heard Faisy Ishmael come on from the United Kingdom and talk about um, just a lot of the issues that were present in the tertiary sector in the UK. Well, this week, I'm sort of continuing that theme with another speaker from the same talk back at Marxism 2021. Uh, this is Dr. Olushogu Fasinurabaku. Uh, you'll hear Ross give a little introduction, and then uh, he'll go into this lovely talk. And I think, again, you'll see a lot of parallels between the issues broadly with the tertiary education sector, but this time it's actually coming from probably one of the most militant unions in the world. And before we do go to it, I have mm. to mention that it's just been announced that despite the fact that the ANU uh, has just uh, returned uh, less horrendous losses than they expected, they're still going to go mm. ahead with... Uh, cutting staff by 400. Yeah, that was exactly what we'd heard from Faisy last week. So, yep. Here we go. And so I'm going to introduce Dr. Olashoga Fasaranabaku, an associate professor at the Federal University of Technology in Akira, Nigeria, formerly the chair of the Academic Stock Union of Universities, one of the most militant uh, unions in Nigeria, and... Olashoga participated in the recent strike that went on for nine months uh, and is here to tell us about that. So please make Olashoga welcome. Uh, before then, I want to tell you that in Nigeria we have 170 universities, 91 public universities, 79 private Universities In Nigeria, we have the structure, uh, local government structure, state government structure, and the federal government. Local government cannot afford to uh, build a university, so we put them out of this uh, equation. 
but state governments and also federal government they build public universities. So from the state we have 48 universities and the federal government own uh, 43 universities. And we go straight to uh, the first segment that I told you that is about the problems facing university system in Nigeria. Uh, we quickly raised two points. One being low uh, fund allocation to the education sector. Uh, for the past 10 years, if you look at the budgetary allocation of funds to education sector, it has been abysmally uh, low, ranging between 5.6% uh, and 10.7%. Uh, Even that of this year, 2021, is so bad that it's just 5.6%. And it's from this allocation to the whole education sector that uh, the university withdraw its own uh, uh, allocation, meaning that just take a fraction of this uh, for the university. So we want to say that there is low uh, fund allocation to the university system being a major problem. The second one has to do with the student lecturer ratio. Student lecturer ratio, depending on faculty, in faculty of Greek and engineering, it is expected that the student uh, lecturer ratio should be 9 to 1. In pharmacy, it's expected to be 10 to 1. In sciences, uh, it's expected to be around uh, 12 to 1. And also in social sciences, law and arts, it's expected to be 20 to 1. But the prevailing situation in Nigeria is that uh, the student lecturer ratio is 45 to 1, which is killing hardly expect lecturers to give their best under that uh, situation. This poor student lecturer ratio, we can say as well, arose from low uh, funding to education uh, sector, especially the university uh, system. So when we put this together, we realize that uh, the ruling class in this nation, they are they have the intention to actually decimate the uh, education sector, not leaving out even the university system. That's why you see the number of private universities being almost at par with the number of uh, public universities. And these private universities, they are owned by the ruling class. And they are really struggling to see that the key the public uh, university uh, system. Now, the second segment of the presentation, which is the 2020 strike, um, the strike started on Monday, March 23rd. Uh, we did arrive at the commencement. Uh, we, we, we didn't commence the strike uh, until a referendum was conducted by the union, where every member had the opportunity to vote for the commencement of the strike or, or not. The union, which we call Academic Staff Union of Universities, ASU, has its own structure and has its own way of uh, prosecuting uh, strike. That is, there is this tradition that is there when you want to prosecute strike by the 
union. You, you, you get it started via a referendum. Uh, the union has about 56 branches all over the nation. And then there is a structure of the zone too, where you have a zone uh, that we comprise at least three branches. So it is expected that the level of each branch referendum will be conducted to know if the union should embark on strike or not. And this was actually done after uh, members have been sensitized and mobilized for the for the strike. And the the strike actually commenced uh, Monday, 23rd of uh, March. Um, the demands. Uh, of the union, uh, there are about five. Number one is injection of revitalization fund into the university system. In 2011, the union agreed with the government to inject 1.3 trillion naira into the university system after the federal government uh, themselves, after they have gone to assess these various universities and they discover that it is uh, important that they inject sufficient fund into the university to make it uh, functional and they agreed on 1.3 trillion naira to be released in tranches. I want to tell you that they did not release anything aside the 200 billion naira which they released in 2012. 2012 to date is about uh, nine years and they are, they, are, they are not uh, bringing in anything. So that's why the union decided that uh, they must inject uh, something. So that, that one happens to be uh, one of the demands of the union. The second demand being the uh, payment of hen academic allowances. Hen academic allowances came as a result of the SS work carried by uh, the university lecturers, you know, they don't only teach, they also do research and some administrative work. And by the time you look at the cumulative uh, work that they do, you realize that they are doing excess work than uh, what is required. And because of this, they said they should be remunerated. So this remuneration will come in form of hand uh, academic uh, allowance. But the government has reneged on this. They are not paying. So uh, the union had to list this as one of its demands. The third demand being uh, the rejection of the payment platform. There is a new payment platform brought up by the government, which did not capture the peculiarities of the university system. And they want to force every university staff you know, to be on this payment uh, platform. They call it integrated personnel, uh, payroll information system, IPPIS. And um, it is to the disadvantage of uh, uh, these lecturers. And they said, look, we must reject this. So they listed that one as one of the reasons uh, why they have to embark on strike. Another point is um, renegotiation of an agreement with federal government. In 2009, which is about 12 years ago, the union entered into an agreement with the federal government and they agreed 
that they will be renegotiating that agreement every three years, meaning that their agreement is supposed to be renegotiated in 2012. But up till last year, 2020, they did not renegotiate the agreement and it's badly affecting the union. So the union also listed that as one of the demands. And the last of it is proliferation of state universities. Like I told you about the levels of government in Nigeria, the state had the opportunity to uh, build universities. There are some states, in Nigeria we have 36 states, there are some states that have more than one university that are poorly funded and at that they still felt that they should have more universities and the organ that is regulating uh, uh, creation of university which is the national university commission we still give them license to go ahead and create more universities so the union felt it would be important to fight this policy that look you cannot continue to create more universities that will not be well funded uh, the last segment which has to do with how the strike was organized and sustained i will quickly tell you that there is a tradition on ground uh, on how to prosecute and monitor strike by the union. Uh, one being that there will be a national strike coordinating committee that will be at the national level. So the union put that one in place last year. And uh, secondly, there is strike monitoring committee at the level of each branch. It is expected that each branch should come up with a strike monitoring committee. The committee will ensure compliance of uh, members uh, to these uh, strike conditions and also see that uh, people don't break the, the strike. Um, aside that, the uh, various branches are supposed to be having weekly uh, meetings where they will uh, uh, give adequate information to members and also assess the progress of the strike and report back to the National Strike Coordinating uh, Committee. So by the time you put all these factors together, uh, it will help to uh, actually uh, sustain the strike. Uh, another point is that no member of the union has the right to speak to the press on strike matters. If you are approached by press crew or press member, or press members, you direct them to the branch chairperson, who will give undiluted information uh, about the strike, so that there will be coherence in uh, reportage of what is going on about the strike. And lastly. The strike is never suspended or called off or ended until there is another referendum which will be conducted uh, throughout the nation. And at that, um, members will then tell whether they should go ahead to suspend or not, which the union actually did and uh, it actually helped uh, the, the union in uh, keeping and sustaining the, 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 the strike. The strike was long because uh, it ended in December, uh, but we should not forget that COVID-19 you know, also played some roles in uh, dragging 
the strike uh, to that uh, level. On this note, comrade, I want to thank you for listening to this uh, presentation. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. Solidarity breakfast. Um, God, love the Ramones. <laughs> we were both kind of <laughs> having our little head bashing the in the studio. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. G'day, Jack. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Absolutely. Uh, it, the phone just keeps making funny noises, so uh, we'll just uh, plug on. And we're talking to Jack Vendus. He's from Friends of Public Housing. And uh, as we said, uh, we did speak to Steve Jolly, who's uh, an independent socialist councillor on the uh, Yarra Council. Um, but the uh, Greens uh, have. Uh, uh, who are a block on that council have rejected the uh, Labor uh, government's uh, push to uh, have some what they call social housing, a social housing project in the council now, mm. uh, a council area. Friends of Public Housing actually support this move by the uh, uh, council. Do you want to give us a lowdown on uh, the Friends of Public Housing Victoria's view, Jack? I sure can. Um, we actually wrote a, 
uh, emailed to all the Yarra councillors. So what I can do is just read that out because that's our, our response and then we can have a chat about it if that's, that's fine with you. Okay, go Absolutely. for it. Okay, so subject. Um, this is to the um, all of the councillors in the City of Yarra. Public housing on public land, friends of public housing Victoria. And I'll st- read in. Um, friends of public housing Victoria rights to support the Greens councillors in the City of Yarra in their stand against the state government, community housing sector and the media in refusing to hand over public land for private profit. There are far better ways of providing desperately needed low-cost housing. Subsequent criticisms levelled against the Greens councillors regarding their decision have been both predictable and erroneous. Criticisms have come from the general public who mistakenly assume social housing to mean public housing. The state government has deliberately sown confusion with their deceptive use of social housing to imply that it covers public housing. If the Greens, right from the start, had stressed their support for public housing as a motivating factor in refusing the land deal, then they would have found themselves in a stronger position. We appreciate the stand made by the Greens State MP, Ellen Sandell, in Parliament, highlighting the differences between public housing and community housing, stressing the benefits of public housing and making an effort to dispel the confusion. Most politicians from across the political spectrum should be speaking out against the privatisation of public housing and discussing housing policy in unambiguous language. We urge the Yarra Greens to make it clear to the general public that the term affordable housing is not being used in its ordinary sense. Affordable housing, as Labor defines it, refers to housing that can charge up to 80% of market rents. The rent is often set at 75% in order for the landlord to claim charitable status and tax breaks. The medium private rent for units in Collingwood is $450 per week. 75% of this is $337 per week which is hardly affordable for those on low incomes. The government line and that of the community housing sector itself is that community housing tenants have rents that are capped at 30% of household income. Regarding this, the Victorian Housing Registrar clearly states that in the community housing model, Rent setting is a complex area with no single model applying across the sector and furthermore is very flexible. Community housing is basically private housing with inherent pressures to maximise profits. In addition, there is less security of tenure in community housing and fewer protections than in public housing. For these reasons, all Yarra councillors should be pressuring the state government to build public housing. 
In a pre-election promise, October 2018, Labor pledged to build 1,000 public housing properties, stipulating that they would be 100% built, owned and managed by the government. The Age reported at the time that this would be a return to traditional model of providing state-owned housing. Two and a half years later, where are these promised units? The Yarra Council offered Labor's Housing Minister Richard Wynne a smaller parcel of land which could have gone towards honouring this promise, but Richard Wynne refused to consider it. Building public housing seems to be perfectly doable before an election, just not afterwards. In offering this smaller parcel of land, it would have been better if Yarra Council had specified genuine public housing rather than using the term social housing. It is high time this misleading term was dropped from housing policy discussions. Richard Wynne has made it clear, following on from the Yarra Greens decision, that Labor is now moving on and will try and exact the same tactic to convince other councils across Melbourne and regional Victoria to relinquish public land using the bait of a percentage of social housing to secure their ends. They are calling this inclusionary zoning and it is being used as a tool to privatise huge tracts of public land and to massively increase the private community and affordable housing sectors at the expense of public housing. Before the council elections in October 2020, Friends of Public Housing Victoria alerted the candidates across 13 councils in East and South East Melbourne, representing more than 2 million people on this urgent matter. The government was promoting this policy direction under the misnomer, and I quote, the regional, local government homelessness and social housing charter 2020. We pointed out many flaws in this charter. We need to look at the bigger picture. This is not just about Collingwood. We cannot afford to lose public housing and there is a well-funded and powerful movement to destroy and to privatise it. As the council with the largest concentration of public housing and public tenants in the state, we are looking to the Yarra Council to play a major role in opposing the privatisation by stealth of public housing. And so ends the email. Yeah, well, Jack... Uh, yeah, yeah. Just reminding our listeners on Solidarity Breakfast that we're talking to Jack Vendus from Friends of Public Housing and uh, there's so many things that come out of this articulate message to the Absolutely. public. Um, one of them is this slippery language that's constantly being used, Inclus- inclusionary zone. I can't hardly even say it. Um, <laughs> inclusionary zoning. Yeah, zoning. And uh, this business about uh, the regional, local government, homelessness and social housing charter. Uh, it, it It's like that uh, thing about... Uh, uh, t- uh, encouraging people to or getting people to actually go to war where you say to them that uh, the op- uh, uh, the opposite 
of what they do is going to be much worse. But they're also doing a, a common good, a public good, if they're sacrificing themselves for the public good. And this is the same kind of idea that the uh, uh, government is, uh, Victorian government is actually offering, aren't they, when they talk about social housing to uh, people who really require public housing. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's like selling your soul to the devil just to get 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 a small gain. And I mean, I use I use the same um, analogy as, or let, let's imagine we don't have enough schools, and um, we want to build a a new school in your area on your land, and we say, hey, hey, guys, we're actually going to build a um, a new branch of Scotch College there. It'll, it'll be more expensive and different, but, hey, it'll, it will reduce the pressure on the schooling system. So even though it's not what you want, you should go go along with it. Or, you know, we're going to build a private hospital there, not a public hospital, and that means, you know, there'll be a different class of people will be able to use it. But, hey, this does reduce the pressure on the overall system. Um, you know, you can cave in and accept the deal. And the point is, if you accept the deal, you've lost the land forever. Yeah. It's gone. Well said. Yeah. And and in the Yarra in the Yarra case, I mean, half of it was gone anyway. It was the the deal was for two hundred um, dwellings on the land. A hundred of them were already designated as private housing dwellings, and I guess they were going to be used as profit for the developer, um, and maybe to pay for the other the other dwellings. Sixty of those were community housing, which means they'd be run by private companies. And, uh, you know, the devil's eyes in the detail of the agreements, but, you know, these companies could could do anything of those 60 houses. And then the other 40 dwellings on, on the, the property were this, this weird term called affordable housing. You know, what does that really mean? That's another slippery and, language, piece of language. Yeah. I'll tell and you something, you know, that thing about uh, the percentages. I'm not sure if people are aware of this, but when they start using percentages, what they're saying is that uh, uh, if you apply, only people who are earning a certain amount of money will be allowed to apply for any of those social housing units anyway because they've always got to strictly be, say, 75% of their salary. Now, unless you're earning a certain amount, Mm. uh, uh, then the amount that they want for that unit won't be achieved unless you're earning a a certain amount. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. It's actually, um, well, firstly, the rentals... uh, 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 attached to market rate rentals, and it might be a seventy-five percent of market rate. But that means also that the whoever actually is able to pay that will be earning more yeah. than someone else. So yeah, yeah. Got, so pensioners won't, won't be able to apply for this. That, that's exactly right. They won't. They won't. They won't get in. And mm. I mean, the classic example I, I, I heard just recently. I mean, we know for a fact that there are people who've been on the um, Pub, on the housing register for year years, waiting for their their um, you know, property, and and because they haven't built any new public housing now for twenty years, you've basically got to wait for something to vacate before the next person pops off the list and get gets the accommodation. But the the contrast to that was that someone else uh, who was earning a lot more, yeah, sure they were on the list, 
Um, they applied for accommodation. They were offered community housing within two weeks. Yeah, well, so there you go. Now, more and you get a better deal. And, and why? Because Richard Wynne and successive governments have not built a skerrick of public housing um, for 20 years. And and not only that, but the guy's gone and promised to do a 1,000 of them. Well, here was a great chance to do it. I yeah, mean, yeah, well, talk about fixing, uh, fitting a fat foot into a small shoe. But um, <laughs> there's this other thing, too, that's really come out of all this, is this social housing empires that are being built with commercial priorities. Yeah. Yeah, well, these people don't have any, any um, public welfare as their business objective. Their objective is asset development. And, and the more assets they have, the more they can borrow to grow their empire. And mm. I guess, in a way, it's also going to be survival of the fittest because there was a report from the Australian Treasury looking at the, the financial models of these organisations. The Treasury actually predicts they'll swallow each other up until there'll be a, be a handful of mega um, community housing businesses in, in the country. Uh, and the way things are going at the moment, they're, uh, they're just good mates with, with the government. I mean... It, yet again, it's it's just another example of privatisation for mates. Yeah, well, what there, and, there's and a lot of to, money in poverty. Yeah, and leading to monopolisation of poverty. And I mean, these, and I also technically call these organisations uh, not for profit, but then if you look at their books, well, they've actually got a heap of retained earnings, so mm. they can actually go and do their expansion. Uh, let alone how much are they paying their executives? Hey, oh my goodness, we're doing too much profit this week. Yeah, we better pay ourselves more so that we don't make any profit. Yeah, know? yeah. What it's so, so it's uh, <laughs> another piece of administ- administrative sleight of hand. Yes, it sounds like one of those silly old, um, you know, wacky government type comedy movies, doesn't it? Except, yeah, yeah, yeah. Except we've got people sleeping in cars and waiting years for public housing as a result of a ridiculous um, sort of behaviour like this. Jack, we've got to move on pretty soon. Um, one one last thing we might just go ahead and ask you. What, what can listeners do to push back uh, against... Uh, Yarra Council and beyond about these about about this public housing rot. Frankly, yeah. Well, really, I think that you know we're fighting a battle of terminology. Uh, you know, when the the government announced a five billion dollar budget to provide more social housing, my friends mm. said, "Hey, fantastic, Jack, you've achieved your aim." No, we haven't. We need to hear the word public housing. And the only public housing is public housing. And if they're doing it, they'd be saying it. So if you don't hear the word public housing, it's not public housing. It's a trick. It's a weasel word. Just remember that. The only public housing is public housing. So what you're saying is you want people to actually speak up about this. You want people and to educate actually talk themselves. about yeah. 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 Challenge it. Oh, that's exactly what Ellen Sandell did in Parliament. She said, mm. "How we know that this is a, a a slippery word." I'm paraphrasing her now, and she asked the question: How much of the big housing build in the budget will be public housing? That question has never been answered, but it's very easy to tell how much it'll be zero. Because the finer detail says we will work with community housing organisations and private developers to develop these properties. Right. So there, there you go. It's, it's privatisation by stalk and also 
giveaway of government land, which we will desperately need when we do get around to building more public housing. Here, here. Thanks for your time, Jack. Thank you for the opportunity. Hey, this is Pressure MC from the Hilltop Hoods. Hey, what's up? This is Safa from the Hilltop Hoods. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on your dial. Support community radio and subscribe now. The Wizard of Oz book was published at the turn of the 20th century. Its author was W. Frank Baum. He was a political reporter in the 1890s and lived in South Dakota, this during the rise of the populist movement. The support for this movement came mostly from farmers and workers during a period of rapid industrialisation. What we might ask were the conditions that drove this movement. There were many, but the two major components were the drought that faced half of the United States, the western half, and that industry and farming in particular, in particular, had been economically devastated by deflation, that's falling prices, in the decades following the Civil War. They were demanding an increase in the amount of money in circulation, silver coinage, as well as income tax reform, direct election of senators, and other ways of giving farmers and industrial workers a better playing field in the economy while strengthening political democracy. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it, uh, with the injection of so much money in the economy now, as we've seen due to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, COVID pandemic. The push by the government and the media to adopt the gold standard was seen as an attempt by the financiers and government to prevent the flow of money to those in need. William Jennings Bryan became the main spokesman for the movement and became the presidential nominee for both the Democrats and the People's or Populist Party. At the 1896 Democratic Convention, he delivered his famous cross of gold speech against the gold standard. He said, quote, You shall not crucify mankind upon the cross of gold. I call for free silver that the government stamped silver bullion into coins upon demand to increase the money supply and end deflation, unquote. Both the media and the financiers and government went to work on Brian and, of course, the support base. Farmers were portrayed as dumb and unable to grasp the finer points of fiscal policies. Industrial workers fared little better, being portrayed as mere robots in an ever-changing industrial landscape. It's not very difficult to see the parallels with today's political environment. To quote the old adage, the more things change, the more they stay the same, unquote. Before we move on to the detailed uh, allegorical look at The Wizard of Oz, it's necessary to take a closer look at William Jennings Bryan. Bryan is mostly remembered as the religious fundamentalist who opposed, who opposed Clarence Darrow in the famous Scopes Monkey Trial in Dayton, Tennessee. Bryan was, in fact, a progressive social reformer, 
a very complex individual who worked with Darrow over many, many decades on a range of important social issues. After Brian's death, Darrow and others commented on Brian's move to religious fundamentalism. They believed this turn occurred with Brian's abhorrence of the rise of social Darwinism, which led, of course, to the eugenics movement, as we know. They suggest he made the wrong decision for the right reason. In other words, he should have uh, criticised the misuse of science. And we all know, of course, that the American eugenics movement really was the underpinning uh, and a very strong basis of Nazi ideology in the 20s and 30s. You don't need to read Mein Kampf to realise that. Brian was called the lion from Nebraska for his oratory skills. It was said that the tent poles shook during his outside speeches. As the populist movement faced defeat, Brian was called a coward by some for not continuing the fight to the bitter end. When the Wizard of Odd book was released, it caused some controversy in the media. Keep in mind that the details of the populist movement were still fresh in everyone's minds. The newspapers dubbed the book as overtly political, totally devoid of subtlety, and many other uh, things that uh, are not good to repeat in public. Orm refused to comment. The book went on to become the largest selling children's book in history, and that still remains the case today. So what was obvious then is not so obvious now, thanks to our lack of understanding of history, or more succinctly, those who do not understand history are apt to repeat it. Dorothy and her house are picked up by a tornado on her journey from Kansas to see the Wizard of Oz in order to solve the problems of far her farming family were facing in Kansas. She represents each of us at our best. She lands on the yellow brick road, the gold standard, after her house falls on the and kills the Wicked Witch of the East. The Wicked Witch of the East represents J.P. Morgan and the Rockefellers. Her shoes are silver in the book, although in the later movie they are crimson, and she meets companions along the way. The first was the Scarecrow. He is convinced he doesn't have a brain. Virtually how farmers have been portrayed by the media as being afflicted with, quote, ignorance, irrationality and general muddle-headedness. However, the scarecrow proves that he isn't stupid. He shows common sense and resilience on the journey. Her next companion was the Tin Man, who represents dehumanised workers, who were literally turned into tin by the Wicked Witch of the East. He represents workers who have lost their heart in the new economy. He is rusted when Dorothy first meets him, paralleling the high unemployment during the depression of the 1890s. But he is ready to work, very much ready to work, as Dorothy demonstrates by giving, giving him a few drops of oil. Our next companion in, is the cowardly lion. This is very obviously William Jennings Bryan, the lion from Nebraska. He was unable to win just as the cowardly lion's claws could not make an impression on the tin man. 
To add another quote from Brian from his Cross of Gold speech mentioned earlier, Having behind us the and I quote, having behind us the commercial interests and the labouring interests and all the toiling masses, we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labour this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon the cross of gold, unquote. The wicked witches of the East and West had been interpreted two ways. There is little doubt that the East represents moneyed interests. The West is less obvious in that it could represent the moneyed interests of the West who were rising at the time, or alternatively, the drought. The water thrown on and killing the wicked witch of the West could represent liquidity, or it could be, it could be about the drought. Suffice to say that the wicked witches represent powerful interests uh, in American politics. That is agreed by all. The Wizard of Oz himself, representing politicians and financial interests, is portrayed as a con man. Even the word Oz has been noted as the symbol for ounces, the measurement of gold and silver, OZ. Dorothy and her friends discover through the journey that they already possess the traits they are seeking from the wizard, courage, intellect and heart. A little sidebar to the story of W. Frank Baum, the author of The Wizard of Oz. He died in 1919 at the age of 62 and always refused to comment on the allegorical nature of The Wizard of Oz or anything else about the where he drew inspiration for his stories. It was noted by feminist writers in the 1960s that Baum's books had an unusual characteristic namely that most of the pivotal characters were female. It was generally known that Baum was very close to his mother-in-law, Matilda. They asked, and this is in the 1960s, who was Matilda? A little digging revealed her full name, Matilda Jocelyn Gage. She was a leading suffragist and a colleague of the Unitarian Susan B. Anthony and the Quaker Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Matilda was a radical feminist and her son-in-law was involved in the suffragist movement. That's, that's born. Both at the local level, he was the secretary of the local suffragette club and he was editor of the suffragist newspaper, Frank W. Frank Baum. It's often said that truth can be hidden but often lies in plain sight if we care to look hard enough. I'd like to conclude my little talk today with a quick look at The Wizard of Oz movie, the second movie to be shown in colour, I think. The, the Wizard of Oz actually is the most viewed movie in history with an estimated one billion people have actually seen The Wizard of Oz movie. Apart from the fact that Dorothy or Judy Garland uh, were, wore crimson shoes in the movie and they were silver in the book, the movie was under scrutiny during the McCarthyist period. Let me explain. The lyricist for all the music, all the music in the movie was Yipsel Harburg, Yip Harburg. He was the lyricist of what was called um, the defining song of the Depression, namely Brother Can You Spare a Dime. Now, we remember that. I think uh, a few people have given different versions of that. Incidentally, by the way, 
brother, can you spare a dime? The tune of that da 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 is a Russian lullaby, the actual tune itself. And there's other stories about Harburg and Ira Gershwin um, walking along the street and being asked, uh, being approached by a beggar uh, who said, brother, can you spare a dime? Now he was trying to think of the last sentence in each verse. And that's how it ended up supposedly being, brother, can you spare a dime? Harburg was questioned by the uh, Un-American Activities Committee over every line of the lyrics in Wizard of Oz particularly somewhere over the rainbow. Questions like, what is this world over the rainbow? And Harburg said, where people live in peace and harmony, uh, was one of his responses. And definitely a subversive. Uh, he was 11 years on the blacklist. In an interview post-blacklist, uh, Harburg revealed that he had been working almost as normal under, under the blacklist, uh, with the full knowledge of many leading directors. In other words, he submitted uh, lyrics under assumed names. It even got to the point where one of the award winners had to, uh, under the assumed name, had to front up to get the award. Uh, he'd never written anything in his life. Um, but Harburg added uh, that he was more fortunate than most who were blacklisted because he could use, he could still work. Uh, with the pseudonyms and so forth. He added in this interview that I saw a little mischievously that while every line of these songs were minutely examined, the, they completely missed his name. Yipsel is a nickname. His actual name was Edgar. Yipsel was Y-P-S-L. And he thinks, he thinks they uh, assumed it was Yiddish. YPSL stands for Young People's Socialist League. <laughs> they completely missed it, all these, all these great interrogators. <laughs> Perhaps I'll end on the note, uh, what could be described as an allegory of an allegory. Uh, I'll end with these words. We have the ability to, make, ability to make our world a better place for all humankind. Within ourselves and collectively, we have both the resilience and the talents. Only the will is required to do so. Thanks for listening. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener. When, as big supremo Scuttlebin Morlash, son, a.k.a. Scummo, announced his new policy on reducing CO2 pollution, without reducing CO2 pollution, he boasted that True Blue Aussie was doing the heavy lifting, had done more than the US of, in addressing climate change, if there is such a thing. Uh, better than the US of, Scuttlebin? Certainly. Better than the US of, under four years of Donald Trump or the poor. We bloody hope so. The Loyang Power Station performed better on climate change than the US of under four years of Donald. And as usual, his Minister for Pollution, Angus Palings, reiterated his commitment to coal as the solution to coal. It's all about outcomes, Angus said. True, ask him. And outcomes, the usual crap. No, no, not crap. The government has given us the solution. Technology. Believe the science of technology. Simple. Take a deep breath of CO2 and then bury your head in the sand. Oh, and state-of-the-art new nuclear reactors. 
but what about the disposal problems? These are state-of-the-art, and if there is a problem, which there won't be, if, then take a deep breath of radioactivity and bury your head in the sand. Despite these promising breakthroughs, a host of Nobel laureates released a statement urging the world to start acting more assiduously, act based on science, which the government knows has nothing to do with climate change. <laughs> Are you suggesting science has caused climate change, if there is such a thing? <laughs> Angus displayed his expertise, and even a bunch of ex-senior trained killers whose role in life is wiping out life, a noble, noble profession being glorified nauseously this weekend have come out urging Scuttle them, Angus and the team to do a bit more than rest on their post-Donald laurels. The government does know science is credible when it comes to coronavirus, prompting Angus to throw up a brilliant thought bubble idea. Let's vaccinate the population against climate change and then we can bury our heads in the sand along with the pollution. Uh, and sequestration's going well, Angus? Oh, yes, yes, really well. well. Well, we are having just a little bit of trouble sorting out a few minor technical details like how to do it and how to get it in there and how to keep it in there. As a result, Scuttlebeam praised Angus as a great thinker, which, given his senior ministers include Constable Peter Duffer, just might be true as relativities go. And to those doubters, sceptics who scoff at government boasts that True Blue Aussie is meeting its climate change, if there is, commitments in a canter, we are. After all, a horse cantering is just loping along without using much energy, not going anywhere near flat out. So yes, we are in a canter. Other than in Scuttlebeam, Angus and the team's canter, they're using more and more energy while going nowhere fast. And sadly, we have been out-satirised by how can we compete with that from one of the government's most brilliant fossils, Matt Canavan of Coal, who declared even attempting to reach net zero emissions, of which there's not much risk, is like the 10-year-old kid trying to jump off his parents' roof thinking he's Superman. He's going to fall flat on his face. I can't think of anything to say about that brilliance, whatever it meant, as thanks to Matt and his fossils, the world is falling on its very asphyxiated face. By the way, at that US op-sponsored link-up, Scuttlebem's mic went moot for much of his explanation of why we're an outlier, which is probably for the better. On that nauseous coverage this weekend celebrating a military disaster on which True Blue Aussie's values were forged, coverage including a full program of events, at least we can console ourselves that next weekend we'll see equal coverage of veterans, bravery and the program of events to celebrate the victims of the ongoing class war. I'm sure they won't just ignore May Day. On much-admired resources entrepreneurs, those ads, more than a million dollars worth, that Clive Palmer Gina has been running attacking ASIC, the corporate regulator, which has been known to, ever so occasionally, to slap a corporation over the knuckles, have nothing to do with Clive having a vested interest. Other than ASIC is looking at that collapse of his nickel mine in Queensland, leaving workers owed trillions, left without a nickel or a dime, while Clive and his lot were left with much, much, much more than a nickel and a dime.
with ASIC also investigating whether the workers' entitlements funded the political party, he also spent trillions advertising to ensure the socialists didn't win the last election. Now, we know Clive hedged a court at the drop of a few trillion dollars, so so much so he could almost be declared a vexatious litigant, and he has taken ASIC to court, claiming their investigations into his activities constitute, wait for this, constitute an abuse of his human rights by investigating him. Let's just say that again. Clive Palmer Gina is suing ASIC for abusing his human rights by investigating him. What a frustrating day. First Matt Canavan of coal, now Clive. How can we satirise those who go so far out of their way to satirise themselves? Still on climate change, if there is, and coal, we've all been following the struggle by local communities and environmentalists on the Liverpool Plains to prevent the Chinese company Shenhua from opening its open-cut coal mine, which objectors say could cause massive environmental damage. Well, they would, wouldn't they? They have no consideration whatever for the economic benefits, for progress, for a bit of sensible compromise, a bit of sensible give and take. They probably even cynically say give and take always leads to the take bit. Anyway, this time they've won. The New South Wales government has cancelled the exploration licence. Just one small, well, not so small, a hundred million small problem. They're paying the company 100 million compensation. No, I don't know either, listener. It would be a hell of a lot cheaper to just say, get stuffed a hundred million times. China. The Minister for Women showed she is capable of doing something, as in her other role as Minister for Cuddling Up to the US of, she stepped the belt and dug up the road Victoria was wearing and traversing. Uh, Why have you torn up this deal with China, Maurice? It's nothing to do with China. China has no right to object. I don't believe China will retaliate because it's nothing to do with China. Uh, Then why? It's to do with the country the Victorian socialists did the anti-Trublawazi deal with, which uh, uh, is China. It's nothing to do with China. Uh, So you'll ban Trublawazi great transnational resource corporations from dealing with China, flogging iron ore, coal, that sort of thing. There is no comparison because this has nothing to do with China. Well, I suppose we'll have to take her word for it, but the the positive is at least she showed she could do something. But but as we mentioned the other week, it's better that Maurice does do absolutely nothing as Minister for Women, because that's a hell of a lot better than Maurice doing something. Notice great innovator Elon Musk's The Profits has won a 3.75 billion, true figure, contract from NASA to develop a system for landing astronauts on the moon. Given NASA itself did that back in 1969, why did they need to... No, no, let's move on. Now, we reported a few weeks ago that two of Elon's SpaceX Starships had performed wonderfully in tests apart from one minor problem. They both crashed on landing. And then the company, leading the company to comment that the test went really well, but we just have to sort out the landing bit, which, yes, we might have thought a touch important. Well, since then, they tried again, and the thing landed okay this time. Good news. Apart from the fact that as they were cheering, within seconds, it just blew up, blew to smithereens, spontaneous destruction. Another highly successful test, apart from that minor problem they need to sort out. 
So given Elon's record, I suggest that any astronaut contemplating a trip to the moon on Elon's 3.75 billion project might just think twice. If they can't land the bloody thing on Earth, what hope the moon? Presumably they're looking for somewhere other than Earth they can go about stuffing up. Apropos of not much, notice the supremo of the Financial Services Profits Council's name is Sally Lone. A crane company worker sacked, sorry, suddenly let go by the caring employer, accused of passing on information to the evil construction union, led to that most illegal of evil activities, a picket line. So evil an activity that a righteous his honour fined the union $1.2 million for its menacing, calculated, shameful, inexcusable and unacceptable behaviour. Leading the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Bacalia, cost the workers to attack the Socialist Party for even thinking of abolishing the Smash the Evil Construction Union's jackboots commission, whose costs, incidentally, 133 grand, the union also has to pay. The word evil does spring to mind, doesn't it? I'm sure His Honour and Michaela would be satisfied with their day's work. Like another responsible, law-abiding, important person, big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs at a photo op cuddling a koala and displaying his scintillating wit and hysterical sense of humour. Its claws are sharp, he said. They're like the opposition, <laughs> at which the acolytes around him pissed themselves laughing. Such a funny, funny man. But finally, the piss bit reminded me, and our older readers will recall, years ago a Socialist Party tourism minister cuddling a dear little koala for promotional reasons, and it pissed all over him. What a clever little koala, doing what we'd all love to do. Good morning. Five, four... You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. And you're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Chris Breen on the line. G'day, Chris. How hey, are Chris. you? Hello. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, they threw the incitement uh, case out of court. Can you tell us what happened? Uh, yes. Um, very happy about that. Yes. Uh, so we are I too. Charged... <laughs> I was charged with incitement um, under the 1958 Crimes Act for being one of the organisers of a safe car convoy protest back in April uh, April 10th last year, uh, calling uh, calling to free the uh, refugees uh, at the, the Medivac refugees at the Mantra Hotel in um, uh, Preston um, and to, you know, <coughs> stop them at the risk of COVID. Um, and the court case uh, went ahead after four days of hearing. Um, I was uh, found not guilty on a, uh, I guess it's a, a factual uh, basis. So some of the actual law uh, wasn't decided on in the end. Um, I was found not guilty uh, on the basis they didn't have enough evidence that they they couldn't prove that it wasn't somebody else from Rack rather than me who'd made a particular post or that it was um, made in particular dates because the law kept changing about when it needed uh, to be made. Um, that, that's when is... when when the Victorian government had told yeah, everybody that, 
to stay at the, home. The health, the health laws and the, the health restrictions, which uh, you know are continually changing. Um, nonetheless, it is a win, which I think um, is important, has important consequences for the right to protest. Mm. Um, if I had been found guilty, it would have had, I think, a, a chilling effect um, on uh, protests, not just for refugee protesters, but for you know all social movements. Um, there's been a whole range, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters have been fined under the health laws. Uh, you know, the fantastic women's protest recently, um, you know, had, had huge numbers of people uh, for unions. Uh, so it is um, an important win. But the fact it was on factual grounds means that there were still 30 people from the refugee, well, refugee supporters who were fined a total of $50,000, $1,652 each. Mm. And their cases will go ahead uh, separately. Uh, probably around uh, June or July, and so we're still going to have to defend those, and so that's uh, so it's not quite finished with yet. Yeah, right. Um, the big deal, of course, was that the police decided to prosecute you for incitement. Now, incitement, of course, is usually, uh, as it was pointed out, uh, are, are, um, used for murder and... Um, Egregious acts of violence, and, and, that kind and of thing. kidnapping, yeah. that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, so this was uh, re- really ringing alarm bells, wasn't yeah, it? it was it was a try-on by the police. Like, they admitted there was no case law. All the case law was related to uh, murder. The last time incitement was tried to be used against protesters was back in 1992, incite to riot for the other study five, which was a student uh, protest that ran up the steps of Parliament House, and there were five activists who were charged out of that. They were also found not guilty. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the police were using the, you know, the COVID laws to, to try to um, <coughs> expand their powers, to try to clamp down further on protest. Um, and to create, you know, create precedent. Yes, absolutely, to create precedent. Um, after I was charged, there was somebody retrospectively charged, uh, Jerem Small, from the IMARC protests uh, the year before for incitement. As far as I know, that case is still going ahead. Cracking um, Moses. So it's, I mean, it's, yes, it's a, it's a good thing um, that I was found uh, not guilty. And, I mean, I'd certainly like to thank everybody who supported us. Uh, you know, we had a statement. We had eight unions. I think every Greens MP in Victoria who supported us. A uh, range of lawyers, doctors, um, so forth. Uh, one of the refugees, uh, Mostafa, as, as in Betava, uh, Moz from Manus, gave evidence um, for us in court, you know, which is quite a thing to be getting solidarity from the refugees who've been locked up for, uh, you know, seven, eight years. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty outrageous stuff. Um, it, 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 they were, people were saying that uh, whatever the outcome of this particular magistrate's hearing was, was that uh, either side would appeal. So have the police... Uh, made no, that, any sense? Because, of the, because of the way that if it was a question of law, so there were questions of yeah. whether uh, we mm. came under the care and compassion part okay. of the Act, whether there was a reasonable excuse, which goes to questions of uh, the implied right of political communication in the Constitution. If they had have been ruled on, it probably would have been appealed. But because it was done on a factual basis, uh, that leaves the police really no room to appeal. Uh, so... 
my understanding is that the case is is done. Well, what a clever well, magistrate! Yeah. What a clever there's magistrate! Not going to be there's not going to be uh, any appeal because it was not a ruling of law, but on the, the factual uh, grounds. Grounds. What a clever person. Mm. I had the... Un- oh, lovely. It, I mean, it went on for a very long time and I had the impression that the magistrate, because I listened to the first uh, day, I, it was actually mm. not supposed to be going on for as long as it did. Um, and it, and at one point I was under the impression that the uh, magistrate had actually called all parties out and was hoping that uh, it could be taken out of her court because she didn't feel that it was uh, an issue that should be at this level, uh, uh, that she should be adjudicating on this kind of issue. Um, But then it was argued that uh, so much time had been spent on this particular case then it should proceed. So it was obviously making the magistrate slightly uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, that was because of really the rarity of uh, incitement charges. Uh, so what what she was saying there is that the way the law was written is that indictable offences, uh, which I thought meant you, if you face a jail, but it's not, it's just a legal uh, technicality, indictable offences, which incitement is, should be heard at the county court. Uh, breaching the health laws is not an indictable offence, and so it was being heard at the magistrate's court. But because the incitement charge couldn't be converted to a non-indictable offence, the whole thing should have been heard in the county court. Uh, but in the end, both parties agreed to have it kept being heard in the magistrate's uh, court because of the amount of time spent, uh, because it would have affected... There was a whole range of um, negative consequences for us if it was moved to the county court as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it becomes a completely different uh, fish, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations. Fantastic. So what can um, listeners do to uh, support the other members of RAC who... Oh, actually, before we do that, uh, it, it one of the things... Because it was factual, it, it, it does speak to the uh, uh, notion that, uh, say, Extinction Rebellion particularly is uh, part of and uh, it would all ca- also came out in other uh, earlier demonstrations is that... Uh, Spreading the load amongst the uh, membership rather than constantly focusing on a leader is actually a very good strategy. Um, yes, I mean, uh, I mean, that, that's RAC is a collective. Uh, we have no formal positions. Um, I mean, I've got a record of my interview, and the police, well, not in, when they came to my house and they said, "Are you the organizer?" and I said, "I'm one of them." Um, and I mean that was a one of you know, ultimately what the the uh, you know the courts uh, sort of found in a roundabout way. Um, so yes, I, I think that's um, important. Uh, the other people who've been fined, they're not all members of RAC. They were refugee supporters who came to the rally. Um, we do have a fundraiser um, that you can find on our Facebook page or our website in case we have to pay uh, the fines, but we are going to fight them in court, so we're hoping that's not going to happen. Uh, there will be protests if there are uh, court cases. Um, if we uh, get if we uh, just get those fines dismissed, all of that money will go directly to uh, refugees. Um, Who, as people must know, even if they're released, are in uh, financial limbo. Yes. 
So there's now been over 100 of the Medivac refugees uh, released, but there are still around 80 who are held, who are despairing and wondering if they'll ever be released. Um, and the, the, the court cases, um, which had led to some of their releases, are now effectively on hold. There's a high court case that people are waiting, AJ20, to, to come, come down, which might take some uh, months, which has sort of put a, a pause on all of those. Um, and the people who have been released are released with zero support. So they're on six-month uh, bridging visas. They get no income. They can't get job seeker. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's thousands of people, um, there's 1,200 people in Australia who came from offshore, including children and families from Nauru who've been in that situation for years, mm. and they're in desperate poverty. Um, so mm. RAC is continuing to fight to free the rest of the Medivac refugees and to get permanent visas and income support, you know, for people. The Medivac refugees, they are effectively being resettled in Australia, but they're being dumped with nothing. Systemic cruelty. Absolutely. Thanks for talking to us, Chris. Um, thank you very much. If I could just uh, plug two things quickly. Please. Yeah, uh, go for it. Victorian Trades Hall uh, Council, RAC and Unions for Refugees have got a solidarity barbecue at Trades Hall next Friday, 6.30pm uh, at Trades Hall, 30th of April. Um, it's free, but people need to book because of COVID uh, numbers that can go to Trades Hall. Um, so I encourage people to come to that. And on uh, May the 29th, Unions for Refugees have um, and rack a, a rally at the Park Hotel. Um, and there are three unions who are backing that so far, calling for the release of the other refugees there. So what time um, is that? Uh, that's 2 o'clock. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, May the 29th at the Park Hotel. Duly noted. Good on you. Thank you very much. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Renowned surf coast musician and artist Red White and his band of nearly 20 years, Ink Factor, with their swampy, psyched-out surf-punk sounds, launched their new album, Soup Du Jour, on Friday the 30th of April at the Barwon Club in Geelong, with special guests, the Hibernators and the Quick Sixes. Tickets through barwonclub.ozdix.com.au launching Soup Du Jour on Friday the 30th of April at the Barwon Club Geelong. For more info, go to facebook.com forward slash inkfactor.
Eat Factor and Red White are proud supporters of 3CR Grassroots Community Radio. And it's the end of Solidarity Breakfast. We have to be swift. We did a, a range of things. We uh, heard from the Nigerian Teachers Union, mm-hmm. uh, Wizard of Oz. We uh, heard about uh, public Friends of Public Housing from Jack Vendis. And uh, this is the week that was. And Chris Breen, who has been freed of incitement charges, which yeah, is great. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I might talk along to that barbecue myself. So, um, yeah, next week, of course, is May Day. And um, we've got a very special show lined up, which uh, we, we won't speak to too much about, but it'll be a lot of labor history. We're going to condense a lot. Make sure you tune in to Solidarity Breakfast next week. Till then, stick around. We've got Asia Pacific Currents coming up. See you next week. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.